0: It's just another Friday if that's not true. Maybe you'd be excited about the weekend or maybe you would have some sort of big plans for yourself. But if those words weren't true, this isn't good Friday. It's just, it's just Friday. It's another one of 52 that you would get over the course of the year. Let's pray together and then we'll continue on. God, thank you for... The truth of those words. That on the cross <clears throat> the wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on him was laid. And that in the death of Christ we can live. Lord, would our attention be focused on the cross tonight? God, would you tune our hearts into the reality of Jesus Christ's work on our behalf? God, would we. Reflect on, God, would we remember? Would we see clearly? God, would we celebrate the work of Jesus Christ on the cross on our behalf? Lord, we pray these things in his name. Amen. Can grab a seat. Well, tonight we wanna we wanna just see and celebrate the cross. Uh it's It's weird to to say that, that we want to celebrate an act of capital punishments, Uh, but that's exactly what we want to do. We want to see Jesus there and reflect on all that that means for us 2,000 years later. And my hope is that as we look at the cross, we would see the results of the redeeming, justifying, atoning work of Christ, that despite the the darkness and the brokenness of the sin that both put Jesus on the cross and that we exist in the midst of here in our world today, that we would see that there is so much to be celebrated because on the cross, all the blessings of our justification were won for us. And we could list off a number of those blessings but I want to look at the first five verses of Romans chapter 5. And the lights are a little bit down in here. And so we're going to put the verses up on the screen, which isn't something that we always do. But if you have a phone with a Bible on there and you want to open up to Romans 5 so you have it there in front of you, uh, you're more than welcome to do that. In those first five, ber- five verses, Paul names four specific blessings of the justifying work of Jesus Christ. And so that's what I want us to do. I just want us to look at those and reflect on them just a little bit here this evening. And so I'm going to read Romans 5, verse 1. This is what it says. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, being Because of everything that Paul has already said up to this point, he's laid out the reality of sin, the necessity of a savior, the grace of God in sending Jesus Christ on our behalf, what it means that he justified and redeemed and atoned for our sin. He's walked through the fact that we receive that grace by faith and by faith alone. And then he says, therefore, since we've been declared righteous by faith, and he starts to list off some declarations some absolute certainties that we have because of that justifying work. And the first one, he says, is that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an objective reality. There are other places in Scripture where Paul talks about the peace of God. Most notably, I think about Philippians chapter four, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's a subjective thing. It can come and go in our lives. We can have seasons of life where we're really feeling the peace of God, but we can have other seasons of life where we're struggling, we have turmoil in our own hearts. But what Paul talks about here, a result of the justifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross is the objective, unchanging, eternal reality that by faith in Christ you can have peace with God. No more wrath and anger like Romans two talked about, no more affliction and distress. You've got certain and unchanging peace with God. There are some things that Paul doesn't mention. You don't have certain and unchanging peace with the world. In fact, if you place your faith in Jesus Christ Jesus himself in Scripture makes it very clear that you will actually be in opposition to the world. You don't have certain and unchanging peace with your own flesh and with the own, your own sin that still lives within you. In fact, that should cause a war inside of you, that you would go to battle against that sin. You don't have certain and unchanging peace with the people around you. Even your closest relationships are often marked with, strife. Sometimes you get into an argument with your spouse. Sometimes you butt heads with your children. Sometimes you and your coworkers don't see eye to eye on something. You may have a couple days or a week, or you might even have a season of life where you experience peace in all of those areas. But because of faith in the justifying work of Jesus Christ, you've got certain eternal, unchanging Peace with God. This is the way Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter two. You were dead in your trespasses and sins and were by nature children of wrath. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We must see that that happens only through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Jesus said so himself. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Our peace-filled relationship before God for all of eternity comes through the Son, and it was made possible on the cross. Thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on Good Friday, all who place their faith in him have peace with God. That makes Friday good. That makes this particular Friday very good. But there's more. Let's go on. The first half of verse 2 says this. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Access into grace. The thrust of that word access is carries this imagery of being accepted into the presence of the king. There's an Old Testament biblical illustration of this that's far better than anything I could possibly give, and so I just want to walk through it. It comes from Esther. There's this high point in the story of Esther. The king is searching for a new queen and he hosts what is essentially a beauty pageant and after a lengthy process Esther is chosen to be the new queen and as the story unfolds it becomes pretty clear that the Lord wants to use Esther in this position for a very specific purpose. Esther's uncle informs her that there's a plot among the king officials to kill all of Esther's people the Jews. And and her uncle is convinced that Esther's the only one who can save them. If only she would go into the king's presence and plead for his intervention. And in the run of their conversation, Esther tells her uncle the following. All the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard, but has not been summoned, the death penalty, unless the king extends the gold scepter allowing that person to live. Esther says, I have not been summoned to appear before the king for 30 days. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, then delivers what are his life's most memorable words. He says, Don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you live in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your family will be destroyed. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther asks for Mordecai and her family to spend a number of days in prayer and fasting. And on the third day, Esther gets dressed in her royal clothing. And she goes and she stands in the inner courtyard of the palace. And she's facing the throne of the king. And the king comes in and He is seated directly across from her. And there's his wife, the queen, Esther, who he hasn't seen in 30 days. He hasn't called for in 30 days. And they're just kind of looking at each other. Esther's life in that immediate moment hangs in the balance. And by extension, the life of Esther's people, the Jews, hangs in the balance. And if it were a movie, the music would kind of start to crescendo and the camera would cut back and forth between the king and Esther and the tension would build. There would be this kind of pregnant pause while everyone, both participant and spectator, awaits to see what happens because Esther deserves one thing, death, and she knows it. And upon seeing her, Esther 5 says this, She gained favor in his eyes and the king extended the gold scepter in his hand toward Esther and she approached and touched the tip of his scepter. Access had been granted. Despite the laws of the kingdom and her justly deserving to die for daring to stand uninvited in the presence of the king, instead of implementing the law of the land upon her, he chose to do something else, to extend grace. And not just a grace to live in that moment, to have peace in that moment. The rest of the story of Esther goes on to show us that she's actually got grace to stand in the king's presence and have a conversation, to draw near and live. Brothers and sisters, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross has granted us access. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then the king has tipped his scepter toward you. And you can draw near and not just experience peace in that moment, but you can experience the grace in which to stand. In the words of John Stott, justified believers enjoy a blessing far greater than a periodic approach to God or an occasional audience with the king. We are privileged to live in the throne room. Our relationship with God is not sporadic, but continuous. It's not precarious, but secure. We do not fall in and out of grace. No, we stand in it. For that is the nature of grace. See it again, Romans 5, the first part of verse 2. We have also obtained access through Him, by faith. It's through Jesus, through the cross. Your ability to stand in the grace of God has nothing to do with how lovely you are and everything to do with the grace and love of God. It's wrapped up in how lovely and beautiful and satisfying Christ's work on the cross is. Esther got dressed up in her royal clothes. You could put on the very best of your human nature and still not deserve to stand in the Lord's presence. But if you go into his presence dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone, the scepter has been tipped to you. And there's peace and there's grace. Thanks to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for all who place their faith in him, there is access into the grace of the King. And it's not just in some future moment. You live in the throne room of the king right now. That's a blessing of the justifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross. There is grace to stand. That's what makes Good Friday so good. But there's more. The second half of verse two. And we rejoice in the hope Of the glory of God. There's peace, there's grace, and now there's rejoicing. There is joy. Specifically, we have joy in the greatness of the hope of the glory of God. And I actually want to work kind of backwards on this one. Were there no peace with God, we would not rejoice in the moment of seeing the fullness of His glory. We would tremble. Were there no grace, we would not be able to stand in His presence. But because there is grace, And because there is peace, we can rejoice in the glory of God. It's the second time that Paul has actually used that phrase in the book of Romans. The other time he used it was in Romans chapter 3, and he made the opposite statement. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The work of Christ on the cross has fundamentally altered our reality. For all who place their faith in Christ, you who have been justified by grace through faith, there is now joy in the hope of the glory of God. Before your justification, you would have trembled at the thought of coming into contact with the limitlessness of his grace, of his glory. Now you will see it on the final day and you will be exultant. What you had seen and known somewhat dimly throughout your life will explode in its full radiance right before your eyes, and you will join with the throngs in heaven in singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. I love the way Paul works through this. He's Already, in two verses, navigated the past, the present, and the future. The results and the realities of our justification were secured by Jesus on the cross. Good Friday is good because of what it grants to us. Peace with God. It was secured. He secured it on the cross, and then at your moment of placing faith in Him, it was given to you by grace through faith. And now we stand in his grace right now as believers. Our present days are marked by living in the throne room of the king. And then one day you will see that glory in full in the future. The work of Jesus Christ on the cross and the blessings of our justification are all encompassing. They overwhelm all of who we are, past, present, and future. If you've placed your faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, then one day you will see Him in the fullness of His glory and you won't have to tremble. You'll rejoice. And you don't have to wait until that moment you stand before Him in order to rejoice in it because the hope of that glory is something that you can hold on to right now. Joy in the glory of God, that's part of what makes Good Friday so good. But there's more. Verses 3 and 4. And not only that, but we also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character and proven character produces hope. The end of that string is what we have right now. Hope. We could spend a significant amount of time tonight unpacking these two verses from the standpoint of how do we have hope and how do we rejoice in our afflictions. And that would be a very good and profitable time to spend together. That would be a really good sermon to sit through. I hope it would be. But for our purposes tonight, I want us to do something a little bit different. We're gathered together to look at the cross. And so that's what I want us to continue to do. But let me say this before we start working our way through these verses. If you're in a place right now in your life where you'd like to talk about the implications of these verses on your current circumstances, please, please reach out to one of the pastors on our staff. It would give us so much joy to be able to sit down, schedule a time where we could get together and talk about the affliction or the trial or the difficulty that you're experiencing and how it's possible to have hope in the midst of those. I want to look at these a little bit of a different way, though. There's a string here. Affliction, endurance, character, hope. I sat down A few days ago with a member of our church who has experienced a a very challenging, afflicting 10-year period of life. And he made some incredibly poignant statements about what it means to have hope in the midst of affliction. But one of them that I haven't been able to get out of my mind since our time together was that he said, the following we don't rejoice in suffering and affliction because we get to suffer we rejoice in affliction because it does something it has a result and that result is good and because of this we're able to take our sufferings and turn them into sacrifice I want to read those verses again And I want you to think about Good Friday and Jesus on the cross. And not only that, but we rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character. And proven character produces hope. There is no better picture of what that looks like in life than the image of Jesus Christ both in the moments leading up to and in his time actually on the cross. Jesus, while he's praying in the garden moments before being arrested, he prays, not my will be done, but yours. That's turning affliction, that's turning suffering into sacrifice. The idea of proven character there, carries with it this image of refining metal and removing all of the impurities so that what, what's left is a kind of sterling silver that's without blemish. What's left is this authentic integrity to the metal. As I've been reflecting on Jesus on the cross, The thing I can't stop thinking about is his conversation with the criminal hanging next to him. And in all of his affliction and in all of his distress and in all of his pain, the criminal next to Jesus says, remember me when you come into paradise, when you enter into heaven. And Jesus, in all of his pain and in all of his suffering and in all of his affliction, replies back, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Proven character, displayed on the cross. Jesus came to do one thing, to glorify the Father by taking upon himself the consequences of sin for all of humanity, and if there was ever a time where it might look like his commitment to that and his character in the midst of that might crack, it would be under the agony, the excruciating pain of crucifixion, and yet in that moment, the worst of his affliction, he knows exactly who he is, exactly what he's come for. He has ultimate, hope. He knows for certain the results of his work on the cross. And he says, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Why are we left with hope? Why is that something that we have as a result of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And the answer is because despite all of who you are, had you been hanging on the cross next to Jesus and you looked over at him in faith and said, remember me, when you come into your father's presence, he would have looked back at you and said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. There's hope. And in all of his pain. And in all of his affliction, Jesus turned his suffering into history's ultimate sacrifice so that you would know with certainty that today you could be with him in paradise. You have peace with God, you have access into the grace in which we now stand, you have joy in the glory of God and you have hope all because of what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. Those are the things that make Good Friday good. We don't celebrate Good Friday simply because a man a couple thousand years ago was executed on a cross. We celebrate Good Friday because with that execution came all of the blessings of our justification with that execution ultimately came the hope that we cling to as believers. One of the things that we do during our Good Friday service, kind of the center point of our gathering time together, is that we like to take communion as a church. And we like to do it in a little bit of a different format than we typically take communion in. Usually what we do is that Uh, we kind of scatter around the room, and you break up by families, and you spend some time praying. But at our Good Friday services, we like to take it corporately, all together as one. And we want to move into that now, but we want to provide a little bit of space on the front end. You could listen to me kind of pontificate about Good Friday and the realities of the cross for as long as your ears could handle, I suppose. But what actually matters, the reason we actually like to gather together on Good Friday is so that you can spend some time personally reflecting on what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross. And so we're going to take communion after a couple of songs here. And we want to provide some space for you to prepare yourself for that however you want to. Our worship team is going to play a couple of songs. You're welcome to stand up and sing with them. You're welcome to sit and pray and prepare your heart to take communion. You're welcome to flip back to one of the gospels and just read the account of Jesus on the cross. You're welcome to just spend some time silently reflecting upon Jesus' work on your behalf. But what I hope we can do over the next few minutes is prepare ourselves as a body to take a visible tangible reminder of the fact that on the cross, Jesus willingly and even joyfully stepped into affliction on our behalf. That we might spend some time reflecting on the fact that he ultimately didn't do it for us. He did it as an act of sacrifice and worship for the Father. And by grace, we end up being the eternal beneficiary. Jesus's work on the cross is history's ultimate act of worship that has poured out unending blessings for those who place their faith in him. And over the next few minutes, I'd like for us to just take some time individually to center our hearts and our minds on that work. And so whatever that looks like for you, use the next seven to 10 minutes to reflect on Christ's work on the cross on Good Friday and to prepare yourself to take communion as a body. Just to really press into why it is that through it all, our eyes should be on him, that through it all, it could be well with our souls. We have peace with God if we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We have access into grace thanks to his work on our behalf. You can go ahead. We have joy in the hope of the glory of God. We have hope no matter what our circumstances might be. We have them because of the cross. We don't have those as things that maybe as a believer you might get at some point that maybe as someone who's placed their faith in Jesus Christ, these things could possibly be yours. No, they're guaranteed blessings thanks to the justifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And what amazes me about Christ and His crucifixion is that just hours before the process began by which He would be arrested and tried and convicted. He had within him the ability to have this kind of relaxed meal with those who were closest to him. Luke 22 records it this way. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took a cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them, and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But look, the hand of the one betraying me is at the table with me, for the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And after all this kind of what had to be confusing and somewhat mystifying talk, Jesus is talking about his body being broken and his blood being poured out, and he's, I'm going to go the way it's been determined for me to go. The disciples, the apostles, they have the audacity to start to argue about who's going to betray him as if that is some sort of thing worth quibbling over in this moment. And as believers, we're told that when we gather together, we are to take this same meal. The portions have gotten smaller over time. (laughs) We're supposed to take this same meal, not in anticipation of what Jesus is about to do, but in reflection upon what he has done. And as we take it, we should always be reminded of his work on the cross, the blessings that it's given to us. We should always be reminded of the fact that in going to the cross, Jesus won on our behalf peace with God, but he won it in the most unpeaceful way possible. We should always be reminded that he won for us access into the grace of the Lord by having himself denied from the presence of God for the first time in all of eternity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should take it in remembrance of the fact that we could have joy in the glory of God despite the fact that in that moment he experienced absolute agony on our behalf and we should take it in remembrance of the fact that we have hope regardless of our circumstances even though when we think back on that night it looks like one of the most hopeless acts that ever took place to the disciples in that moment they watched their leader die and then they spent a few days trembling over what they fact what they thought was the absolute extinguishing of all hope You see on the front side, this meal didn't look like something that was about to bring peace and access and joy and hope. But on the back side, we see that it's just filled with those things. And so Jesus says, when you gather together, do this in remembrance of me. So let's take this together. Take take the wafer. Jesus says, this is my body. Broken for you. Says, This is my blood poured out for you. unbelievable blessings of the work of Christ on the cross. And as if those four things weren't enough to celebrate and reflect upon and to say, you know what, this Friday is not just good Friday, it's the goodest of all Fridays. Paul ends with what's actually a promise in verse 5. Says this, this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Paul makes this kind of two-fold guarantee. The first is that you have the Holy Spirit. It was given to you at a particular moment. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were justified. You were also indwelt by the Holy Spirit who's been doing this regenerating work inside of you ever since. And at the end of all things, the sealing of the Holy Spirit is going to mark you for eternity with the Lord. That will not, it cannot disappoint you. But in the meantime, there's a second part because there's this distinctive work of ministry that the Holy Spirit does within a believer. He pours out God's love into our hearts. The reminder of God's love is poured out continuously into your heart if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. I want to spend a little bit of time on on one word here. And that word is poured. English is not a super descriptive language. There are other languages that have far, far more adjectives than we have to use. Greek is one of them. What Paul says here is that this hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been continually flooded into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Think 40 days of rain in Noah's Ark. It not only flooded, it continued to flood and flood and flood and flood. And for 40 days, There was this kind of continuing, ongoing, never-ending sort of flood that took place as Noah and his family floated safely on the ark. I want to do a little bit of an illustration here. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you were filled with the Holy Spirit sealing you marking you for eternity. That's a heck of a promise. But then something else happens. And Paul says that the Holy Spirit has this distinctive ministry that it does within each and every one of us. And that the reason hope is not going to disappoint us is because the Holy Spirit doesn't stop at filling us. What the Holy Spirit does is just keeps pouring and you can't contain it all, and you can't handle it all, but he doesn't really care. He just keeps pouring out God's love for you. And this illustration breaks down because this was the biggest picture we had. <laughs> and the reality of the situation is that you are more like a symbol, and the amount of love that the Holy Spirit has to pour out into you is more like the ocean. And it is just dumping over and over and over continuously into your heart. That hope won't disappoint. Because when you arrive at your most broken, when you arrive at what you think is the situation that is the least hope-filled, that is the absolute darkest, and you look at the cross, and you remember that it was on the cross that Jesus Christ bought for you peace, in access, and joy, and hope, you're reminded that there's the Holy Spirit still pouring, continually flooding your heart with the reminder of God's love for you. No matter how overwhelming life might get, no matter How deep down the rabbit hole you arrive where you feel like everyone has forgotten you. Everything on this earth has failed you. Good Friday reminds us that God's love will never do either of those things. And just in case you're prone to forget, the Holy Spirit's just gonna keep dumping that into your heart, overflowing, overwhelming, unending, continual flood of God's love. This is where I want us to end today. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. This is the way Paul talks about the love of Christ displayed for us on the cross. For the love of Christ compels us Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Now on Sunday, we're going to talk about the fact that we live in the reality of the resurrection But even while we celebrate that, we cannot forget the fact that we also live in the reality of the crucifixion. That on the cross, we see a visual picture of God's love poured out at one time. And it gives us the benefits of justification. Thanks to the presence of the Holy Spirit, that love is poured out continuously in your heart. It's a love that's given to all of us. It's a love that takes possession of us. It compels us. It gives us all the motivation we need to walk daily in humbly, obedient relationship with the Lord. And the cross is a place where we not only find rest for our souls, but motivation for our lives. Because while the Holy Spirit pours that love out and continuously floods your heart, it's got to go somewhere. The overflow has to end up somewhere. And it ought to end up into the lives of the people around you. The blessing, of the justifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross on Good Friday is not something we keep to ourselves. It's not something we could possibly keep to ourselves. The Holy Spirit's flooding of God's love should not allow us to keep it to ourselves. As it overflows from us, it should just spill out into the world around us. That Friday over 2,000 years ago on a hill outside of Jerusalem was a good Friday because with Jesus' death on the cross came all the blessings of our justification. We're gonna close our time tonight with a little bit more worship. There's no better thing to do when we stand in the shadow of the cross than to just profess our love for who God is and what he's done on our behalf. There's nothing better that we could ever do in the shadow of the cross than to mimic what we'll do in the presence of the throne. And that's to gather around and exclaim the glory of God. Let's pray together and then sing. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your son. Thank you that his body was broken, that his blood was poured out. Thank you that he willingly endured his suffering and affliction as an act of sacrifice and worship to you, Lord, and that we became the gracious beneficiaries of that. God, thank you that we, by faith in Jesus Christ, can have peace with you. Lord, thank you that by faith in Jesus Christ, when we stand before you in our moment of judgment, it is going to be as if you tip that golden scepter toward us and we have access to you. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of who Jesus is. Thank you that we can have joy in the thought of facing your glory in all of its unveiled and unbridled fullness. Lord, thank you that we can have hope and that when we arrive in a place, God, where we might have despair instead, your Holy Spirit just floods our heart with your love. Thank you that Jesus bought those for us on a hill outside of Jerusalem on a Friday a couple thousand years ago. My sin, oh the joy of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. God, as we stand in the shadow of the cross tonight, would our souls pour out praise. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand.